have you ever re-entered someplace? Sure you have, right? We do it all the time. You'll re-enter your home a little bit later today. You'll re-enter the car. You've re-entered the church building this morning. We're always re-entering places. But have you ever had to do a re-entering that requires some kind of training, some kind of process? You know, kind of like NASA where the astronauts, they re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. And so there's some kind of training and process necessary for that. I was talking this morning to a guy in the military, and he tells me that they have a program called TAPS, so that when military come back into civilian life, that it's mandatory. They got to go through this re-entry training on how to reintegrate into civilian life. Um, have you ever been through a training like that? You know, what's interesting is uh, leading teams over to Sierra Leone, Africa, one of the things we realized is there was a need for re-entry training, because sometimes people would go over to Sierra Leone, and then they'd come back to America, and they'd come back, and at first they'd start feeling really, really bad because they'd look around and they'd say, man, I'm, I'm taking a nice hot shower. I have these wonderful meals to eat. I get to sleep in a comfortable house and a nice bed, and I have all this stuff, and I just feel so guilty because my friends over there in Africa, well, they have nothing. And then it kind of shifts, and then they start feeling really mad mad at themselves because they'll be stuck in a traffic jam and they'll get frustrated and then they'll begin to think, oh man, why am I so mad at this? Like first world problems, what, you know, what am I doing? Or the ice maker will stop working or something and they just, they, they get mad that they feel bad that it's not going the way they should because they think of their friends over there. And they'll get mad at people. They say, look at what we're debating in this country. Over there, they're, they're just trying to get fresh, clean water and good meal in their stomach. And here we are talking about all this, that, and the other. And so they get mad and then they get mad at the church because they come to worship in a place like this. And they look around and they're like, man, it's like some of the people here, they just stand and they don't even sing. And then there's a large number of people who stand and they show no emotion while they're singing. It's just this lackadaisical approach to God and, and worship. Is that when I was over in Sierra Leone, everybody's worshiping with all their hearts. I mean, you can see it was just so evident. These people who have nothing and yet praise God because he is everything. And so they get, they, they get to this point where they're feeling bad and then they start getting mad. And we recognized, wow, reentry training back to America is really, really, really important. How do you come back and how do you serve? You know, last week we talked about the doctrine of justification. And hopefully we saw that the need of the hour for our culture is the doctrine of justification. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that is so much better news than anything the world could possibly offer, because it is profoundly merciful. It is profoundly personal. It is long-lasting. Any kind of self-justification, any kind of justification that the world offers is none of those things. And so we, we saw this, but you know what? In some ways, it's easy to look at the culture and say, this is what they need. This morning, now we turn our attention to sanctification. And I believe just as justification was the need of the hour for the culture, sanctification is the need of the hour for the church. Uh, to, to begin, I, I want to begin with a quote. It says this, For they, having rejected and being unable to understand the commands of God, preach much about the grace of Christ, yet they strengthen and comfort only those who remain in their sins, telling them not to fear and be terrified by sin. Yet they are all removed by Christ. 
They see, and yet they let people go on in their public sins without any renewal or reformation of their lives. Thus, it becomes quite evident that they truly fail to understand the faith and Christ, and thereby abrogate both when they preach about it. Now, we hear a quote like that, and we say, well, who is the law-loving legalist who would say such things? I mean, who's, who's saying that there's pastors out there who, who so misapply grace, they comfort people in their sin, and therefore misrepresent Christ and the faith? Who would say such a thing? It was Martin Luther. It was... Uh, the, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, he wrote this in 1539 in his treatise on the councils of the church. And what I hope to do this morning as we explore the topic of sanctification is to see, to help us think rightly, to help us think biblically about this topic, to see that it is the need of the hour for the church today, especially in America. Uh, it is this doctrine that is able to combine good works, the gospel, and Christian assurance. And sometimes I fear that we put these doctrines out there as if, or these topics out there as if they are, they don't go together. But this is, this is how it works in sanctification. Um, to begin, uh, we need to define what sanctification is. I think a broadly accepted definition of sanctification would be that it is the process by which we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 12.1 puts it this way, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is from that word holy that we get the word sanctification. There is a holiness, a righteousness to the believer. And you see that throughout the New Testament. The language is just throughout it. We are a holy people. We are a holy nation. We're to be holy as God is holy. And sanctification is that process by which we are being made holy. So that what is true about us in justification, what is true about us positionally as we are declared righteous, now becomes true about us practically as we are being conformed into the image of Christ, and it all works together. Now, there are several ideas on how this happens, okay? First, you have the Catholic idea, which doesn't really have a space for sanctification. Basically, at justification, there's baptism, original sin is done away with, and you're just accumulating more and more grace, so to speak, through the sacraments uh, and other, other methods. Uh, so there's not really this uh, delineation between justification and sanctification in the Catholic Church. Uh, there's also the Methodist, charismatic, Nazarene, and in some circles, Baptist view that says uh, that you need a second gift of the Holy Spirit. So basically, you're justified, and now you're just waiting for the gift of the Holy Spirit, at which, at which point, now I can become sanctified, because the Spirit's now at work in me. There's like this little time gap where you're just kind of waiting around. And then what happens? Well, then at this point, I can actually live and attain uh, a perfection here on earth. Now, some have kind of amended that and said, well, you can willfully attain perfection, but you might still sin like ignorantly. You might not be aware of like, hey, you shouldn't do that. You don't realize it. Or you might not do things that you should do because you don't realize you ought to do them. Um, and then there's also the idea that with this view that you can lose your salvation uh, you, or lose your justification. There's also the view that you can accept Jesus as Savior and basically just live however you want. 
and then sometime later, accept Jesus as Lord. Maybe you've heard a testimony or two like that in your life where, yeah, I was saved when I was five, and then when I was 18, well, then at that point, uh, or I was, you know, I, I knew Jesus as Savior when I was five, and I was around 18, then I knew Jesus as Lord. And then I began to really say, okay, God, well, let me read your word and be transformed. And so there's this view. Uh, and then that's kind of when sanctification begins. Uh, now, with all those views, there's different tweaks, there's different nuances, there's different modifications, but those are essentially um, three of the main views. And then there's another view uh, that I think best represents what we see in the scripture. And that is that the process of sanctification begins right at justification. That Paul, he doesn't really leave any room for accepting Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. He says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He must be Lord. If he's not Lord, he's not God. So confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And then at that point, there's this sanctification process that begins where we are being in process uh, of being conformed into the image of Christ. Where we look and live and love like Jesus more and more every day. Uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily a straight shot upwards. There's peaks and valleys. There's not Christian perfectionism in this life by no means. But there's this upward trajectory to life where the Christian looks more and more like Jesus. Um, the reformers, they put it this way, uh, that faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. That it's always carrying with it this idea of good works. Uh, if you prefer the words of James, he says this, faith without works is dead. Or if you prefer the words of Paul, he puts it this way, you have believed in vain. So the question then comes, how do you answer this? Are good works necessary for salvation? Or to ask it another way, is sanctification necessary for glorification? And you need to understand the reformers, the same people who said, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Well, they answered this question, yes. Good works are necessary for salvation. Polycarp and the early church fathers, they answered this question, yes. Paul, James, John, Jesus, the Bible argues, yes, good works are necessary for salvation, not on the basis of merit. We've already established that. It's not on the basis of merit. That is on Christ alone, justified by grace alone, through faith alone, to, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. They're required as the fruit, not as the root. They're required not as the cause of new life, but as the evidence that new life has begun. And so to hold a different view than this actually puts you on the outside of Christ, Christendom uh, throughout the history of Christianity and and some, uh, during some periods in the church, would be considered anathema. Uh, because we have not merely been saved from something. We have been saved for something. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, for, you have, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not the result of work so that no one can boast about it. That's, that's what we've said. And now that's justification. And now here comes sanctification. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so basically what James is going to argue is, 
If what Christ has saved you for is not evident, how can you have any confidence that what he has saved you from will be experienced? If Christ has saved me for good works, but I'm not seeing them, how can I have any confidence that since he has saved me from hell, I'll experience that salvation? Because the power of God, the gospel of God, accomplishes both. The good news of the gospel is that the pronouncement of justification, this pronouncement of sin has been conquered. During the sanctification process, the power of sin is being conquered. And at glorification, the presence of sin is forever conquered. So there is this conquering, this conquering language that is throughout the Bible and especially in the book of Revelation. Um, You're familiar with the word Nike, right? I'm not talking about the swoosh. Before there was the swoosh, the brand, the symbol, there was a Greek word, and it means to conquer. And Jesus especially uses this word over and over and over again as he tells John, hey, write these things to the seven churches. And so I just want to go through all all seven churches and what Jesus says to write. And, And you'll hear this conquering language. Revelations 2, 5 and 7 to the church at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. By implication, those who do not repent, those who do not conquer, they will not eat of the tree of life. To the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, 10 and 11. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. By implication, those who do not overcome, those who do not conquer, they will be hurt by the second death. Go on to the church in Pergamum, Jesus says, Revelation 2, 14 through 17. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have come, you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To Thyatira, you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Hold fast, and to the one who keeps my word to the end will rule over the nations. This is Jesus chastising the church because of her tolerance. And he says it is the church that conquers, who maintains the exclusivity of the gospel uh, and does not allow the church and the gospel to be defiled, who will be the church who rules over the nations. To Sardis, Jesus says, I haven't found any works. You're dead. Repent. And to the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. Their names will not be blotted out of the book of life. To Philadelphia, your works are pure and good. Keep it up. And to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. To Laodicea, Jesus says, I know your works, are, they're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I spit you out of my mouth. And then look at this. Chapter 3, verse 21. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as 
I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. See, this one's very important because there are some, they, they read through this list of the churches and then they come to this point where they say, well, Jesus is the only one who conquers. He, he's the only one who does that. And in one sense, that's true, but Jesus is not saying that. Because look, he's actually talking to the churches. He's writing to the churches. And he says to the one who conquers, will sit with me on my throne just as I conquered and sit with my father on his throne. So if Jesus is actually talking about himself, somehow he'd be sitting on his own lap. I mean, things would get really awkward. It'd be weird, it'd be strange. No, he's talking to the churches. He's talking to us, to believers. So you understand, we must be much more careful with our language as Christians. The authentic Christian life is filled with weakness, yes. Capitulation, never. And sometimes we use this language of weakness, which is wonderful, it's freeing, it's biblical language. Paul reveled in his weakness. He, he reveled in his weakness, but he wasn't reveling in his weakness as a excuse for sin, as permission for sin, or as justification for sin. No, he reveled in the weakness of his flesh that he would be more and more dependent upon God so that he would live the life, the holy life that God requires. And so we must consult the words of Jesus before boasting of being a spiritual failure because he says it is to the one who conquers. Jesus says it over and over again throughout Revelation. And if by weakness we simply mean, hey, we struggle with temptation, I'm not yet the man, the woman that I want to be. I'm, I'm in every day in desperate need of repentance. I'm, I'm, that is fully biblical, right, healthy language. But at the same time, we must have a category for biblical sanctification, that the Christian who receives the reward is the one who conquers. It is throughout the Bible. Hebrews 12, 14 puts it like this. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And you say, I agree with that. The holiness of Christ, the imputed righteousness of Jesus. And yeah, I believe those truths. I would die for those doctrines. But that's not what Hebrews 12 is talking about. Hebrews 12, in context, is talking about disciplining those that he loves. The example is of Esau, who forfeited what could have been his inheritance. You have the language in verses 12 and 13, to strengthen weak knees and to make strong the feeble. And then in verse 14, strive for the holiness without which no one can see the Lord. See, this is so important. This is so critical because our sanctification reveals the reality that the gospel conquers sin. Perfectly in this life? No. But there's this upward trajectory. Our sanctification reveals the reality that the gospel, the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us, truly does conquer sin. And how do we conquer? Paul says that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus said, Father, as he's praying for the church, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Understand, where justification is through faith alone, sanctification is through faith plus obedience. Paul put it like this to the Philippians. In Philippians 2, 12 and 13, he said, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not always in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We work out 
the reality of what God is working in us. Because for the Christian, again, God has not merely saved us from hell. He saved us for a purpose, for good works here and now. So we work out what God is working in. This is the gospel. And we sin because there are aspects about God and his gospel that we do not believe. And therefore, we don't work them out in our lives. This, this is not simply behavior modification. This is not some kind of Christian moralism where we just try to be better and better. Because where that gets you is you look in the mirror and you know that you're a failure. You know that you don't measure up. And so then what happens? Well, then you enter Adam and Eve land where you start deceiving and hiding and covering up because you don't want people to know. That is antithetical to the gospel. The gospel, there's this openness, there's this transparency because we want to be conformed. There's this desperate plea, God, please conform me to the image of your son. And it's, it's a total reliance on him. We are more than conquerors through Christ because he's the conqueror. He's the ultimate conqueror. So we're working out what he has worked in us. Imperfectly, yes, of course. But with stunning clarity, we see this throughout the scriptures, men and women who struggle, but yet they are saved. They have been justified. There's this upward trajectory to their lives. You follow the characters of the scripture. And for the legalist, you know, this is a bit uh, depressing almost because you look and you say, man, you know, you should be straight A's by now. Now you should, you should have this all worked out. You know, let's point this flaw, this flaw, this flaw. But for the rest of it, it's, it's incredibly reassuring because we know our own sin. We know where we still fall short. And there's this just heartbreak over the fact that we don't look and love like Jesus as we should just yet. But there's this deep desire and longing that it would be true. But again, every sin that we commit is because we don't believe something or have a misbelief about God or his gospel. Let me give you an example. Uh, I am somewhat adventurous and playful, okay? Especially with my kids. It's just personality by nature. It's just kind of how I am. And so uh, with my son, Pierce, especially, you know, I like to razz him sometimes. You know, I come up with these little playful names for him. They're all in good fun. We're just having a good time. And, uh, but sometimes he'll look at me and he'll say, Dad, stop. And, you know, I just got to admit, I'm, I'm sometimes like that second grader who just keeps poking, you know? And he'll kind of roll his eyes at me, dad, you got to stop already. But I'll keep poking and then he'll get mad. He'll get frustrated. And then my kind wife will come over to me and she'll say, Steve, what are you teaching our son? You know, conviction, right? And I feel it. And why do I poke? Why, why, why do I tease in that way? Because I fail to believe that God is consistent. And so I don't have to be consistent. And you say, Steve, I don't really know if that's it. Maybe you just don't think about God in the moment. Well, maybe I don't think so, but perhaps. And then I have another issue. Then I don't believe that God is awesome, that, that he's not worthy to captivate all of my thoughts, all of my emotions at all times. And I mean, you, we're going to be going our way through the book of Mark here in just a little bit. And as we go through the book of Mark, one thing you'll see, spoiler alert, is that the people are constantly amazed. They're in awe of Jesus. They can't get enough of him. He's captivating. And the only people who don't think that, think that way are actually the religious people. But, uh, but that's, that's the response. And then, uh, 
You say, well, Steve, maybe you realize he's awesome. You recognize that fact. But, you know, in the moment, you'd just rather do this. Well, then I have another issue. Because then Jesus isn't Lord. Because then I'm Lord of my own life. And I can decide what I want to do. And I can act according to my wills and my feelings and whatever I want. See, no matter where I go, I end up with a gospel issue where there is something about God or his gospel that I don't believe. And that's where all sin is. That's how David can say, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And so we must recognize that all sin is a disbelief, an unbelief in God or his gospel in some way. And, and that's why repentance always seeks after this deeper issue. Why did I execute this behavior? Because I'm believing something wrongly about God and his gospel. So it's always a gospel issue. Our sanctification, our good works, they cause people to stop and wonder, how do you live the way you live? Because they see the gospel at work in our lives. And so you can go through all kinds of garbage, and then there's still joy in the midst of it all. And people wonder, how do you have joy like that? And man, you've got so much stuff going on, and yet there's still peace. You're free from anxiety. How, how do you live like that? And they look, and they say, how, how does your family respond to each other like that? I, I want to have a family like yours. I want to have a marriage like yours. I want to be a worker like you. You come in, you work so hard every day with such a good attitude. I've never heard you say a bad word about anybody. It causes people to stop and ask the question, like, how? Why? And what are they essentially asking? How is the fruit of the Spirit being developed in your life like that? How can you have this type of sanctification going on? How does the gospel work? That's the question they're asking. The point is, our sanctification is a gospel issue. Our sanctification is a gospel issue. Because we see the gospel being worked out in our lives. We see the transformation that God brings about. And you'll hear the comments, I'm sure you've heard them, that you're not the same. You're like a different person. You used to be filled with so much anger, and now there's just life and there's joy. You used to always have these negative comments about something, and now, now it's always positive. There's such love, there's such grace, there's, there's such mercy in the way you live now. So that's the way it works. And we see that throughout scripture, there's all these vice lists, right? Uh, Jesus gives a vice list in, in Mark 7. 1 Corinthians 6 has one. He's, here's, here's all the evil things that the world does. And then Paul says, and you know what? All of that used to be true of you too. All those vices that used to be true of you, but you're not that anymore. Why? Because the gospel is at work in your life. And so you're a new creature. You're a new person. Here's, here's how it's working out. Galatians says the same thing. He says, here are the words of the flesh, and those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, but God brings about something completely different through the Spirit. And he says, the fruit of the Spirit is this. How does that happen? It's through sanctification. It's through the gospel being at work in your life. And so then by the time you get to 1 John, John, he gives you reasons that you can be confident in your salvation, how you can have Christian assurance of your justification. Basically, three road markers that let you know you're on the right path. The first sign is theological. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. says this, 
And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this is life in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So, and as the church, we say, well, yeah, obviously. You got to believe that Jesus is Lord. And, and John will say, if, if you don't believe that, you can have no confidence. You deceive yourself. You're, you're a liar if you deny Christ. And we all accept that for a sign. And then there's another sign. 1 John 3, 6 through 10. John says this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for by God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. By the way, it's important to note, 1 John also writes that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not of us. So John in no way here is he advocating Christian perfectionism, but he is insisting upon a transformed life. So church, it's very important that we do not counsel, that we do not preach, that we do not suggest to people that 1 John 3, 6 through 10 are verses to be ignored in our Bibles. Some of us, we get confused and we preach this gospel as if it is the very opposite of what Jesus teaches of the gospel. This idea that you can keep on sinning, that you can make a practice of sinning. That God, he's up there just like this grandfatherly-like figure who just kind of tossles your hair and pats you on the back. It's no big deal. Just keep on doing what you're doing. I got this covered. But that's not the case. Because he says to make a practice of sinning and this to be just nature of who you are, then you must warn people that you are of the devil. Because the world likes to self-justify. We like to point the finger at other people and say, well, I'm not as bad as them, kind of equal to them, I'm okay. We love to point the finger, we love to self-justify. It's just, no, if you're born of God, will you sin? Yes, but is this uh, the normal nature as to who you are? Well, no, that, that should be the aberration, not the general truth. By the way, some say that John is being just overly harsh here and, and that he's trying. And I'm going I'm to use some language here. I'm not saying this flippantly. I'm not saying this jokingly. I'm not saying this irreverently. I'm just saying what other people have said. They're saying that John is trying to scare the hell out of people in this passage. Not, not figuratively, but literally they mean this. That he's trying to scare the hell out of people. Say, hey, I don't sin. I'm okay. Uh, understand, the Bible is never Christian moralism. It's never just behavior modification. It's always, always this working out what God has worked in. And, he, and, and, God, and John here, he's not saying this to scare people. Do you see his language? He says this lovingly and carefully, like an older saint who just pulls a younger one along and says, little children, I'm pleading with you. Understand, don't let anyone deceive you. There's going to be some out there who tell you, oh, your sin, it's no big deal. 
You can keep on doing that. God's got that covered. You've been justified. And John's saying, no, no, if, if this is really true of who you are, if this is your character, you really got to look and, and ask the question, are you, have you been justified? And so there's another sign he gives. 1 John 3.13. He says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. He explains, if you hate like Cain, you have no life in you. And the illustration that he uses here is this, is this idea that of an empty wallet that you see brothers and sisters, you see church in need. And you say, whatever you need, I'll open my wallet. I'll, I'll be extremely, extraordinarily generous with you. And John's saying, if there's not this unity, if there's not this love, if there's not this generosity toward brothers and sisters in the faith, that you really have no confidence because these are the signs. These are the assurances. Now, these are not driving instructions. It's not like, okay, do these things. Believe this about Jesus. Make sure your works are righteous. Love people really well. Boom, you go to heaven. No, they're road signs that let you know I'm on the right road. Yeah, I'm seeing this being worked out in my life. Imperfectly, yes, for sure. But, but this is what's happening. And people are noticing. And there's this change. You understand sanctification is a matter of gospel assurance. Sanctification is a matter of gospel assurance. You know, I told you about needing re-entry training when we come back from Sierra Leone and how oftentimes that's needed. I never really told you what that re-entry training looked like. And really what it looks like is sanctification. Because here's what happens for all of us at one time or another. We become people who really like to point the finger. To point the finger over at Sierra Leone, Ethiopia, California, our culture, our world, wherever we live. But we like to point the finger at other people and see what they're doing, how do we measure up, play the comparison games, all these things. And sometimes we like to point the finger at ourselves. I should be doing this, I should be doing that. But we're people who like to point the finger. And really, when you come back and you feel bad and then you get mad because you see a culture that's not as it should be, you see yourself, you're not what you should be, you see a church that is not what it should be, and you get mad. But sanctification is the process of not pointing at others, but simply pointing at Jesus. Saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm in just in desperate need to be sanctified, to love and look and live like Jesus. The desperate need of the church in America today is for sanctification. Just as justification is the need for our culture, sanctification is the need for the church. It is a matter of the gospel, of gospel assurance, of the, of the power of the gospel to conquer sin. It's a gospel issue. And we need men, women, and those coming up to, to just to fall on the anvil of God's word as Jesus prayed, sanctify us by your truth. And ask God, please conform me into the image of Jesus. May I look and live and love like Jesus. This is the desperate need of the hour for the church. Heavenly Father, God, we, we thank you that you are a God who does the impossible. God, your word tells us that this sanctification work is not a work that we can do. 
It's impossible in and of ourselves. We, we, we cannot be holy as you are holy in and of ourselves. But God, through the power of your gospel, through what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross, God, we begin to see snippets of it. People begin to notice the change that we do live and look and love a little more like Jesus, that our testimonies do change over time because we change more to look like your son. God, help us to be a church who is sanctified, who lives, loves like your son, Jesus. We recognize we need your help to that end. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.